Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to the Sunridge Teaching Podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means that we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We are gathering indoors right now, socially distanced and masked for now. We'd love to have you drop in. Just check our website, sunridgechurch.org, for the latest details on times and options. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well. If you're joining us online, you're outside, welcome. If you're in person, of course, we're so glad you're here, regardless of whether you're a first-time guest, you've been checking us out, or if Sunrise has been your home church for many, many years. We're just so, so thankful that you're with us this morning. My name is Jed, and it's an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And so we would hope that you would not only feel welcomed here and there'd be a sense of belonging, but that you would find purpose in this community of believers and doubters and folks who are trying to figure out what this up and down endeavor called life can look like when we center ourselves on the fact that we didn't bring ourselves here. And so God has us here this morning, and hopefully as we continue in this series called Ruth, which is the second to last week of this study that we've been in, there are going to be some things that you can take from that. And this morning, I'm going to share a little bit about two of Mal's family members, and then later on in the morning, I'll give you a little bit of a sermon that I gave years ago, and in between, we'll talk about this story. So I told you, share about one of Mal's family members. Uh, Grandma Sharon, affectionately our boys called her Grandma Yahtzee. And uh, the reason why they called her Grandma Yahtzee is whenever Grandma Sharon would come spend time with us and stay for an extended period of time, she of course would pull out the Yahtzee, or I'd say I'd go and buy a new set of Yahtzee because we would need a new set that we would lose. Uh, Every time she left, the boys would lose them, and so we'd have to go buy another set. And when Grandma Yahtzee would come over, I'd pour Grandma Yahtzee her glass of wine and myself a glass of scotch, and we would play late into the night. And the train of thought that I have here for why I would start with grandmas, because that's not just the thing we did together, us playing triple Yahtzee, but late in the evening when most of us would go off to bed, it would be my turn to get some time with grandma, and I would peruse the TV with her looking for some old black and white movie that she would enjoy, uh, maybe with uh, James Stewart or um, Catherine Hepburn, some of these classic actors and actresses. And if those weren't available to us, then we would find a show like CSI or Law and Order. And the train of thought that I have here is typically in shows like that that last 40 to 60 or so minutes, there's this opening scene that kind of just drops you into the activity. Maybe you're watching the crime unfold or you're seeing someone sit in a courthouse and then the rest of the show continues with you having to figure out how it is that it started in that place. And so even though I began talking about Grandma Yahtzee, Grandma Yahtzee is going to help transition us to Ruth chapter 4. Because in the series that ran, for the most part, when we've begun here, we've started giving a synopsis, a summary of the main characters and the plot. But I'm going to do that a little bit later. And instead, we're going to start a little bit more awkwardly. And we're just kind of 
going to begin with our text, with our chapter, and see how you and I can piece together what's happening here. And if you struggle to do that, don't worry, you're in good company. The scene that we're about to see and read about is actually taking place in a courtroom of sorts at the city gate in ancient cities. This was a place where activity like this would happen, business transactions. And so what we find here actually is a court scene. In Ruth chapter 4, if you have your Bibles beginning in verse 1, or you can follow along on this little screen if you can see that. I struggle to see it too. It says this, No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, Come here, friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you evidence, say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know that there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. All right, there's the first scene in our TV show. How are you doing? Everyone know exactly what's going on? You should be shaking your head no. <laughs> because of course not. There's a great reminder that when we read sections of the Scripture, when we look at this as a whole, this library, this, this Bible, this library of these 66 books, it was written over the course of over a thousand years by a multitude of authors in different genres and a cultural and societal background that differs so much than ours today. And just like any movie or story, you can't just drop in somewhere and have a good sense of what's happening. You know, in fact, we could look at our lives that way. Every single one of you came here this morning. I could sit here and I can look at you and I can see your faces. But I don't know exactly what preceded this moment and what's going to follow it. All of us are in the middle of something. And it's easy for people to perhaps look at us and just assume things about us and where we've been or where we're going, but the reality is, just like any story, like any life, we're left with what we're seeing, but we know that there's something that goes there. And so when we look at this scene, there's that cultural bridge for us to get, but obviously there's so much here just in the lives of these individuals that we really kind of just have to guess for. So what's going on here? If you are here last week, you had Britt introduce us to a couple cultural things that I'm going to refer to here again. Britt talked about there being a kinsman redeemer. The text that I just read called this person next of kin. You can write that down. You're filling the blanks if you have it. It's a male relative who has the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in danger, trouble, or need. And so even if you've never heard any of this story before, there are two people here in this scene, this guy named Boaz, and then this unnamed character who are supposed to be acting as kinsmen redeemers. Culturally, they would have had the responsibility to take care of a relative who was in danger or 
and need. And this business transaction that we have is supposed to take care of that. And Britt then referred to Leverett Law. It required the blood brother of a man who dies without sons to marry his widow. Now again, I told you earlier when we started reading this, it'd be hard to piece these things together. Can any of you look at this text and then see these cultural concepts and say you have a very firm grasp and understanding of what in the world is going on? I would hope that you're a little bit confused, and that's okay. And this is the section of our message that's a don't try this part at home, yes? We don't look at these things, and we don't just say, hey, that's the way we go about and do things today, because clearly it's not our world, and it's not our time, but that's what's happening here. There's law that is supposed to be protective of women because in this patriarchal society, this male dominate society that has devolved into this distortion of the way that God intended it to be, where we see that women are clearly at a societal and personal disadvantage, that there still was a heart to hopefully take care of people who had come across circumstances in life that would render them almost incapable of survival. And so this is what we find here, these two men that find out about a relative named Naomi, who has this land. And this land that belonged to her husband, who is deceased, Elimelech. And this land has to be transferred. It's got to be taken care of somehow. And so Boaz, he finds this family member who's supposed to, under the letter of the law, take care of what's happening. And when he proposes him with a, hey, this land is up for sale, this individual, this kinsman redeemer, this next of kin, does a very quick thing. He says, sure, I'll do that. And you have to understand that this time, it's not like the real estate market was hopping like it is today, right? I know a lot of you guys have put your houses up on the market and they're flying like hotcakes. This isn't the same thing. When families reside in a place there's a good chance that for generation upon generation, they're going to live in that same place. That plot of land is theirs. That's where their kids and grandkids and their grandkids, that's where they're going to grow up and play and get dusty and have a good time and try and figure out what life looks like. But when a widow is set to try and do life apart from her husband, In this culture and society, a family member is supposed to then come in and help take care of the estate. So this kinsman redeemer who's seen this land go up for sale, essentially, there's really good incentive for him to just say, you know what, I'll take that land. Because it's not too often that property goes up for sale. There's a good chance for his portfolio to expand, for him to collect some assets. Does that make sense? It's a financial move. It's a good decision for him. But up until this point in the story, if we had known what was happening, we would see this is actually the worst thing that could potentially happen to the book's namesake. I'm going to keep reading here. Verse 5 says, Then Boaz said to this other family member, The day you acquired the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also requiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, 
I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, who's confused? Please tell me that you're confused still. Come on, just tell me that you're confused. It's not because I'm a poor communicator. You should be confused. I haven't given you any backdrop of this story. I haven't told you anything that's happened. Here's your next film to blank. This scene from Boaz and Ruth's life reminds us it's incredibly difficult to truly put others first. See, without knowing what's happened in the story before this moment, if we were just watching a court scene and there was land up for sale and it was presented to a family member, initially that would seem like a really good deal. Yeah, I'll take that land. Even if it costs me, right, there's going to be a return on that investment. And so this unnamed kinsman says, I'll take that land. But then Boaz, he's been planning this. He then presents the thing that comes along with it. He he tells him, if you're going to take this land, there's actually more than that. You see, there is a woman, and it's the daughter of Naomi. Daughter-in-law, her name is Ruth. And if you're going to take care of this land, then you're also going to need to take care of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and you're going to need to marry her. You see how quickly that changed for this individual? I'm going to buy some land, and it's going to be great for me to, wait, now I'm going to get married to this person that I've never met? Guys, that's a little bit comical. There's there's no good reason for that to happen, right? We can see why suddenly he'd be quick to go, I actually, I'm not going to do that. You can do that instead, Boaz. Why don't you take care of that? And then he walks away. You see, if he had in fact gone through with the proposal and that second part that Boaz had been keeping, it wouldn't have been financially sound. This wouldn't be him gaining and acquiring real estate and going about his happy life. No, there would be obligation suddenly, relationally, to take care of two of these women who were widows. And so you look at this story And you hear, okay, so what are we supposed to do with it? And oftentimes when we hear these stories in Scripture or we're presented with them, we're we're given these characters, characters like Boaz or Ruth, and we see their acts and what they do, things that are noble. We see their values and characteristics, and we're perhaps told, let's be like them. Let's aspire to be like them. But as I told you earlier, this is just one scene in their life. And even though there are many things to learn from this particular scene about what Boaz is doing, I'd like to remind us that if we're really going to identify with a character in this story, I'd say I'm probably like the unnamed dude who shows up really quick, thinks something great's happening, and then goes, wait, actually, I'm not going to do that. Because that would require me to put someone else over myself. I've done a lot of weddings in May. A lot of people are getting married again as COVID restrictions loosen. And One of the things that I share in the latter part of the ceremony after their story comes from Philippians chapter 2. We've heard this before. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility 
consider others better than yourself. Each one of us should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, if that were, for some reason, the only Bible verse ever in the history of humanity, we would struggle with it for the rest of our days. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Okay, failed. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Failed. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, I do that sometimes. Right? There's a little bit more leeway, it sounds. And we share these with couples when we hear this here again. Scripture states that Paul's writing it to the church in Philippi because, of course, they're struggling with this very human instinct of ours to take care of ourselves, to protect here. And so this character that we find, this unnamed person, isn't that us? I told you I'd tell you about a second family member of Mao's last week, and if you read our church email, the e-blast, you saw that I talked about Uncle David. Uncle David Johnson, I can remember walking into his house for the very first time. It would have been 13 or so years ago when I was this 19-year-old kid going down to San Diego and still dating Mao and went to visit her family walked in and met Uncle David and Aunt Kelly, and they had three little boys, kind of parallels our lives now. I can remember little Nolan, who I think Nolan's like 19 now. He was just shredded. He was just so, so shredded. Kind of reminds me of our middle kid, Ty. And we would just play with them, and Uncle David was just so, so welcoming to me. Well, last week, Uncle David and Aunt Kelly, we hadn't seen them, and I think 18 or so months, they drove up and they spent Mother's Day weekend with us and they were so kind to take the boys to Harveston Park and Uncle David's there getting the boys all with their fishing lines all set up and casting into the lake and Thad and caught this big old bass and he was super excited and now that I'm telling you this story off the cuff, I wish I'd have prepared a video for you, but I didn't. So uh, he's, he's, he's spending this time with them. It's so, so sweet. And the next morning, he, he comes to church with us. It's Mother's Day. And Uncle Dave is not resistant or anything to church. It's not something that he does regularly. And so, of course, I'm up here leading worship, and I get up off the stage, excuse me, walk around the back, and I'm thinking, all right, here we go. <laughs> Here's the story of Ruth. Let's see how this lands, right? And so... He's listening. He's introduced to concepts like kinsman, redeemer, and leveret law. And it's like, man, what in the world are we going to talk about at lunch today? And Britt did an incredible job, but there's just a lot here, right? It's hard for you and me. And so we get home that afternoon, and I love what Uncle David starts talking about. He, he appreciated how Britt was going back and forth in the story. And then he said, these people, they, they were real people, right? They were just like us. I said, yeah, that's, that's a really big part of it. It's kind of hard to see. We see these names and get little pieces of their lives, but they really were real people at real times with things happening. And he said, so they had the same struggles, and desires then, right? 100% Uncle David. 
I said, that's actually part of what I'm going to be talking about next weekend. And he said, you know, you know how when, when you hear about someone and you're hearing about all the good things in their life or they look kind of perfect to you, he said, I don't know what it is, but when I see people or when I go to church and I just see all these people that, I, that look kind of perfect, he says, I, I kind of have a hard time liking them. I said, me too. He said, but when I hear that they're not perfect, and when I hear that they have struggles, and when I realize they're more like me, I actually want to get to know them more. I start to like them. Sunrise Community Church, isn't that one of the strengths of our congregation? But there's so much weakness here that we're people who show up week in and week out and I don't know what the scene in your movie looks like right now and how it's going for you, but I bet, I bet that you're showing up here because you realize that the people around you, they're not just going to project this movie that looks all perfect because that's not this story. Let me just give us a brief synopsis like we've been doing every week of what's happening. And we're like, oh, fine, I can understand what the heck is going on. Your next film, The Blank, is Life Can Change Suddenly. And that's the story of Ruth. And that's the story of my life and your life. It can change so, so quickly. See, the book of Ruth, it actually is really about a woman named Naomi. And she and her husband, Elimelech, they, they, they travel 50 miles east across a border, the residents of Bethlehem, and they travel 50 miles east to this country called Moab because of a famine in their place. And they travel with two little boys. And we don't know how old their boys are, but I'm going to say little because at the time, these boys aren't married yet. They travel, they immigrate to this new land. And if it weren't hard enough to find your bearings in this new place, we don't know what happens when the first few verses of this book, we find out that Elimelech, he passes away. And we can run through that, and I can say and get to the next part. I've said widow multiple times in this message. But let me tell you, my grandmother, when she was nearing her death, still the hardest thing for her, one of the hardest things, was that she lost her husband. 75% of women, Britt shared this last week, will become widows. And that's really, really tough. But 10 years later, after Naomi watches her husband pass away, and perhaps she's just begun to scar over, over the course of that time, her two sons, they end up marrying women native to that region, native Moabites, and maybe just perhaps as she's beginning to scar over, some way, somehow, it doesn't make any sense, her two sons pass away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? See, my grandmother, she watched her husband pass away, and then a few years later, she saw my mom pass away. And it was the most hurtful thing for her to go, okay, it's, you don't want to see your spouse, but then for your child, it's just so out of order. It's not supposed to happen like that. That's how this story begins. It's this woman who doesn't just face obstacles societally because she's a widow. Think about the pain of trying to figure out how to sleep alone at night. 
and the boys who you carried in the womb and raised in the toddlerhood and watched Mary off, and then you bring these girls in your family. Now you're having to look at your daughter-in-laws and wonder what they are thinking when they walk across town. They see little kids playing. They, they wonder if their kids would have looked this way or that way. And they're trying to figure out what it means to, to be alone in the evenings and figure out whether or not life is going to be all right. That's how this story begins. And so Naomi, she's going to go back home to Bethlehem. And she tells her two daughters, her daughter-in-laws, why don't you stay in this place, Moab, this region where you grew up? Your nuclear family's still here. You could end up marrying that really nice kid that you used to play with on the playground. There's still hope for you here. And so they both say, we're not going to do that. And Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, says, no, first with Ruth. But Orpah eventually decides, you know what, I'm going to stay back. And Ruth tells her mother, Naomi, I am not going to leave you. We read this a few times to you. I don't have it up on the screens. But Ruth tells Naomi, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. And I said that strongly, but she said these with tears. She was weeping. And when they get back to Bethlehem, remember, societally and culturally, something is going to happen so they can potentially get taken care of. And they meet this man named Boaz, who would have been a distant relative, much older, who kindly goes out of his way to take care of this individual, Ruth, and then her mother-in-law, Naomi. And the way that he's going to do that is to hopefully take the land, take care of Naomi, and marry Ruth. But what's in the way is that there's another family member who has the right to do that. That's where we got to. Now, I know there's still so much of that. And you're like, I'm still not quite sure that makes sense. If none of that makes sense to you, think deeply about the depths of pain of a woman named Naomi, a widow who watched her two sons pass away as well and traveling back with one of her daughter-in-laws, unsure if they're going to be taken care of. Does that make sense? That you can think on that? Let's keep reading as we begin to finish up here. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. Pause here really quickly. Sorry, Megs. That explanation for what's happening in the olden days was for people that we consider living in the olden days. This wasn't written so that people in 2021 could understand what was happening. When people were recapitulating the story of Ruth and Naomi, they had to write down this detail so that people back then could understand what was happening way back then. Does that make sense? So if we're crossing a cultural bridge, they were crossing a cultural bridge too. And the way that happened is they took off the rainbow sandal and they just handed it to the other individual. <laughs> it doesn't seem to make much sense. The reference here is that if you walk with these sandals and as you give this to someone, it's confirming this transaction. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I've acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malone. 
I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malone, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who is coming in your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And that's the story for today, folks. <laughs> we saw a court scene. And now we see a wedding. Doesn't seem like a wedding. You're like, someone just took off their sandal. What in the world just happened there? This is a wedding scene. And if we were keyed in the whole time and we knew how all this was going, we were watching this TV show, we'd have been biting our nails wondering what was happening, and we'd be exploding like, I cannot believe that that happened. And I wish I could unpack this better and you could understand everything that were happening, but I still think that there's something here that we can see in the character of our main people, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, that has implications for us and says something about the heart of God. You see, really at the heart of this story is this idea that your name matters. It's your next fill in the blank. Your name matters. See, see how Boaz takes this final bit here. He says, today you're witnesses that I've acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malone. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malone, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. I don't know if you can see this, but Boaz, it's like he's at his wedding it's a wedding scene, but he's not there to honor himself. He's there because he's saying, Naomi, your husband, Elimelech, he was important. I'm not just doing this for you, I'm doing it to honor him. And to Ruth, your husband, Malone. I'm not just doing this so I can marry you. I'm remembering him as well. Do you see how part of his action, his sacrifice is so that the name and the legacy of these men who have passed can be carried forward to the generations? Do you see that? That's what he's doing there. Their names matter. And in the ancient world, names really did matter. They mattered so, so much. And it was believed that names and people were essentially immortalized if their memories, their names, their legacies were preserved. That's why it was so important to try and pass these family names on because actually it was kind of selfish. People wanted to pass family names on so that they would be remembered. And it's kind of funny. That, that sounds like today too. I think so much of our insecurities orbit around our names and our reputation and what people think about us. And maybe more positively, we spin it about how we care about our legacy and what people are going to take from us and what they're going to receive. But so much of that, I'm not saying it's bad, but so much of our instinct and our core and what we desire is for people to look at us and remember us fondly. 
don't have terrible things to say at our memorial, to consider the good things in our lives, to remember the very best of scenes, even though we know, of course, that if they were to take the whole footage or the role, certainly, certainly not everything looked so perfect. You know, it's interesting, what's ironic, what I love so much about this is I'm pretty sure, just based off of how we see these people operating, that Ruth, she was not trying to get a book named after her. She was, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Naomi, when she's traveling back home, with one of her daughters, I'm pretty sure she's not thinking, I'm going to do this so that 2,000 plus years from now, people can be trying to figure out Leverett Law and sandals being taken off for weddings. There's no way in the world that she is thinking that. There's just no way. And when Boaz sees Ruth in the fields glean, there's no way in the world he's thinking I'm going to do this today so that someday people can remember me fondly. That last fill in the blank that I give you that your name matters, it wouldn't be interesting if instead we put quotes around that. Because when you saw your name matters, you're probably thinking about your name. Understandably. What about this way? Your name matters. Mike, Becky, your names matter. Kenny, Lonnie, your names matter. Faith, Teresa, Ken, your names matter. Wade and Al, Michelle, Alma, Carol, Patricia. You can go all over this room. Earl and Sandy, Dave, Annalise. Is that you over there, Mariah? Kim and Scott. Your names, they matter. See, what's funny about us is when we want to be remembered, when we want our legacy to be preserved, and that's just human. That's, that's normal. But I'm pretty sure that there's something about the way that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi live that communicates that truth, that they're not trying to be remembered. They're looking at the people around them, and they are remembering that God is there in those stories and in those lives in the midst of struggle and pain and hardship. And what would happen if we were a community of people who, it's not about having the best of memories. No, no, that's not what that is. It's about value. It's about really settling in with the fact that, of course, I want someone to understand the scenes of my life before this and after this. Of course. So what does this scene teach us about the heart of God. And how does this scene compare to what we see of Christ? I'm going to try and do this really, really quickly. I'm pretty sure when I see this story and we think about what Britt talked about a few weeks ago, chesed, chesed, 
And I remember being in college and theology of ministry, and we're doing a word study on hesed. And we had to look for all these verses where chesed is being used. And I remember seeing Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And thinking, I remember that chesed's not in there, but the verses before it had it. It says, let loyalty and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and a good name in the sight of God and people. Let chesed, let steadfast loyalty and faithfulness never leave you. What's being written there is be a person, attempt to be a person. The word chesed, there's actually like a leaning on language. Be a person that others can lean on. People will see you that way. Then you'll find favor and a good name in the sight of God. And men, when we talk about finding favor, uh, when I think about finding favor, I just think about all the people in my life who for whatever reason decide they wanted to be a part of my story and my life. And they would go out of their way sacrificially to invest in me and, and be a part of the things that probably wouldn't matter to other people. And I think that that is not just a byproduct of Hasid. I really think what's happening at the heart of this story, the heart of God, that actually is the gospel message. That God so loved the world, that He wants to be a part of your life and your story. He could just let you go off and do your own thing. That's called free will but that he would initiate divinely, that he would self-sacrificially empty himself. That Philippians passage earlier about selfish ambition and vain conceit, it continues, let each of you have the same mind as Christ, right? Who though being the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. Being found a servant, he took on the form of human likeness and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see this happening. And if you look at the way Ruth ends with these kids, and Britt's going to get to talk about next week, and the names that we see at the very end, these are people whose names are recorded in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you knew the stories of Jacob and Rachel and Leah or Judah and Perez and Tamar, you'd see that these are pretty messed up stories. Very, very messed up stories. And yet, because God so loved the world, my messed up story your messed up story, it's all in there. Let me conclude by uh, reading a little bit of a message that I wrote a long time ago. And I know we're getting close to time here. But when I first came to Sunridge almost eight years ago, I came as our high school pastor and then our family pastor. And then I took this role several years ago. And my very first message at Epic was the same message that I gave at the very end. I wanted to show them that the conviction of coming here, that we would help each other find and follow Jesus, that was going to be the same from the beginning all the way to the end because of who Jesus Christ is. I'll invite the worship team up. And in this message, I was teaching out of John, and I was telling this story about this little kid who shows up with some lunch five loaves of bread and two fish. He's just there to see Jesus do something incredible. And I'm just telling this story. I remember talking about Russell, the kid from Up, and I just imagined that this kid with lunch, he looked like Russell. 
And so I'm sharing. And my first point to the kids was that Jesus loves ordinary people. And my second point was Jesus gives us the example then to value the ordinary. Let me just read some of this manuscript. I told them, how can we value the ordinary? And what exactly does that mean or look like? I have two suggestions and both begin with our outlook. Have you ever stopped in the middle of the day and wondered, where did this day go? Have you ever, when driving, gone in mental cruise control and you know you get behind the wheel, but then you end up home and it's like, oh, I'm home now. So often, don't we just cruise through life? So accustomed to the everyday ordinary, the routines of waking up, taking a shower, brushing our teeth, changing our clothes, taking a selfie, going to school, falling asleep in class, going home, going to bed, waking up, doing it again. Can you tell I was a high school pastor? And over and over and over we go. This is ordinary life. And we take our ordinary lives for granted. But when I read this story, I'm reminded of my conviction that Jesus enables us to value the ordinary because Jesus is not ordinary. And I'll tell you about that later. Jesus can use every aspect of ordinary life in and for extraordinary things. And maybe you've lost sight of the fact in your classroom, in your dating relationship with your sports team, with your siblings or mom or dad or family member. And all those moments of relationships, every second of your day, every time your heart contracts, releases, beats, Jesus is there. The kid had five loaves and two fish, but this kid's ordinary got sucked up in the extraordinary. And some of you fall in that camp. Those of us who need to wake up and anticipate how Jesus can be a part of all the normal stuff. And yet still some of us may see ourselves in another place. Maybe you're like the kid and the other thousands of people that followed after Jesus because they wanted to see something miraculous. Maybe you're tired of the mundane, the everyday. Perhaps you're looking for a sign, longing for a miracle, hoping for an encounter with God that will suddenly and ultimately change your life. And you know, sometimes I look hope and pray for those things too. And those things obviously aren't bad. We believe in a big God that can do even bigger things. And I'd love it if always, 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 I felt that God was right there next to me. If only I always lived as if I were truly convicted that God lives in me. But ultimately, you know what I felt or seen God the most? When I've stopped to contemplate his greatness and wonder, I'm watching my 10-month-old laughing because my wife is making farting noises with her mouth somewhere in the abyss of Liz's triple chin. When I met with your epic leaders for the first time two weeks ago on a Sunday night for some barbecue, and in a matter of two hours, I saw how deeply they love you guys and Jesus in this place. I'm sitting with a student for coffee when one second we're talking about football practice and then five minutes later he's fighting back tears as he tells me about his family that looks perfect to everyone else but is constantly screaming at each other at home. I'm hanging out, having fun, crying, laughing. All these moments and experiences that simply come with being human. Jesus wants to be a part of our ordinary lives. You're wondering what now? Well, Jesus allows us to be ordinary because he is Extraordinary. Jesus was human, but not merely human. He was human, but not only human. God incarnate, God dwelling among us. Jesus forfeit his divine stats to come to earth and be human, to serve and live among us humans, to be and experience everyday life just like us. As mind-blowing and crazy as that may sound over 2,000 years later, you and I are in this room tonight because Jesus Christ loved on ordinary humans and impacted their ordinary human lives in such extraordinary ways. They took up his commission, just kept telling people about his love and sacrifice and death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave to other ordinary humans who then told others and then told others. And I want you to know that my heart for this space is that when people walk through these doors, they'd feel a sense of, okay, 
I can be myself here. There are other humans just like me. I believe that God desires for Epic to be a come-as-you-are place, come with your brokenness, your joy, your emptiness, your desire to learn more, your questions, your doubt, your excitement, your anxiety, your depression, whatever it is that you have, five loaves and two fish, bring it. Bring what you have and let's see what God will do with it. The unexpected, the surprising. Because Jesus allows us to be ordinary. The question for all of us is this, will we allow Jesus to transform us? Can we invite Jesus in our everyday ordinary lives in expectation that Jesus alone does the extraordinary work, the work of saving us and awakening us to a life that is not easy or simple, but a life with Him that is fulfilling? This is the first and the last message that I gave to our high school students, and it doesn't change. You want to have a relationship with Creator God. You, you desire for that, and yet there's no way to get away from the fact that when you walk into this place, there's a sense in you, just like every other day that you've woken up, where you wonder whether or not out of the 7.8 billion people on this planet, if your life matters at all. And so much of what we do is in an attempt to be seen and loved and taken care of. But when we look at the story and the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, do not we see that these individuals were doing their ordinary life, things changed, crazy things, this up and down craziness, and they just continued to try and put the others around them over themselves. And Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. This is setting up his arrival, but the heart of God is still in it. And so very last film, the blank has a challenge. Will you and I ask God to shape our hearts to see others the way we wish to be seen? I'm going to challenge you as this concludes, as we head into our pre-sermon retreat, and you think about being a part of our church community. If you haven't registered for that, register for that. And join us in the experience of being alongside other people in this church family and see the other people here in their stories and lives matter. But even more so than just registering for this event that's going to end after a few days, walk away from this place and would you pray in your heart that whenever you're driving this week and you're passing all these cars and these people that are going to and for you see people walking on the side of the road, would you in your heart of hearts whisper, it matters. They matter. Even them. God's in their story, in their life. He cares about their name. He knows the details. I'm telling you, if you just for one week, just one week, turned off the radio and drove around thinking about all the people passing in those vehicles and remember that their desire is just like yours, just like Ruth, just like Boaz, just like Naomi, just like every single person on this planet who God breathed the breath of life into. I guarantee you that the gospel will suddenly become the best, most absurd, amazing news in the whole wide world. And you and I will actually want to start doing something with that. Let us pray. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. 
Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.